Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast, the show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money with your host, Pete Mikaitis. Hello, and thanks so much for joining us here for episode 370 with Jack Nasher. Jack is bringing some intriguing research to bear, showing just what it takes to increase your perceived competence. So you'll learn one, the two things that enhance your perceived competence and how to show them. Two, how to optimally manage expectations. And three, how likability and attractiveness play into perceived competence. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, you'll find it over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep370. Now here's Jack's story. Jack Nasher is on the faculty of Stanford University and the widest read business psychologist in continental Europe. He's an Oxford graduate and he's worked for the UN, European Court of Justices, and Skadden. He's the founder of the National Negotiation Institute and is a leading expert on reading and influencing people. He's a member of the Society of Personality and Social Psychology and a principal practitioner with the Association of Business Psychologists. He's spoken at TEDx and he's also performed as a mentalist at the world-renowned Magic Castle in Hollywood. So thanks to Jack for spending some time with us and thanks to our sponsors. Check them out. One sponsor to check out is LinkedIn Jobs. Did you know that you can post a job for free at linkedin.com slash be awesome? And with a fresh year, perhaps you're like many small business owners looking for some fresh insight and talent to make 2024 extra amazing. Well, LinkedIn Jobs has created tremendous tools to help you find the right professionals for your team faster and free. I love how they make it so easy with their promotion and selection tools. LinkedIn isn't just another job board. No, no, no. LinkedIn has a vast network of more than a billion professionals, which makes it the best place to hire. Here's some fun facts. 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. And small businesses rate LinkedIn jobs number one in delivering quality hires versus leading competitors. You can post your job for free at linkedin.com slash awesome. That's linkedin.com slash B-E-A-W-E-S-O-M-E, as in you are being awesome, be awesome, to post your job for free. Terms and conditions do apply. Here is Jack. Jack, thanks so much for joining us here on the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. Thank you. Thank you for your interest. Oh, well, I think we'd have so much good stuff to discuss, but I think we should start with your work as a mentalist at the Magic Castle <laughs> and elsewhere. What's the story here? Yeah, it's funny that you start with it. Nobody starts with that. That's You're the first one who starts with it. Usually it's like a footnote at the end. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> it's quite unusual. But yeah, my uh, performance at the Magic Castle are... Basically, um, the other side of psychology. So it's, you know, what somebody said, it's like using your five known senses to create the illusion of a sixth sense. Uh, so it's, it's using, um, uh, you know, psychological tools to create the illusion of mind reading, to create the illusion of uh, mind control and all these things. And well, sometimes actually it is mind control. And, you know, I do it for fun sometimes. And I, I perform about 20 shows a, a year at the Magic Castle and at other venues. Uh, and, and it's, you know, it's basically psychology, but for entertainment purposes. Well, that's intriguing. Is there any chance it's possible to do a demonstration via audio only right now? I, I wish I could. I know. Okay. <laughs> well, I had to ask. I had to ask. You have to look into my piercing blue eye. <laughs> I will turn on the video. Secret, basically, you know, that, that's all there is. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it doesn't work without looking into the piercing blue eyes. Is there a particular, I don't want to call it a trick or an illusion or a piece or a, what's the word we use for a unit of performance in a mentalist show? What would I call that? Uh, well, they call it experiment. An experiment. Okay, there we go. 
you know why? Because sometimes it doesn't work. <laughs> so we call it experiment. You know, nobody blames you. Say, well, it's, it's an experiment. You know, it's, you know, so experiments work or they don't work. Well, could you paint a picture for us in terms of which experiment is most uh, mind blowing, crowd pleasing favorite? Yeah, and you know, actually, a good example. I just came back from a cruise and I uh, performed an experiment, and it just I blew it. It just didn't work. I have to be honest with you, and uh, because I tried to hypnotize the whole audience and the spectator on stage, and it just didn't work. And that's the problem, you know. Sometimes, really, this stuff doesn't work because it's it's real. It's just not a trick, and uh, that's what makes it really difficult. So every time I perform a mentalism uh, show, I'm really nervous. So I'm I'm in Oxford right now because I'm teaching here. And I'm thinking about going to open mic nights in London tomorrow, just to, you know, to some pubs where they're, you know, everyone is drunk and, you know, they just abuse you and then they assault you and they throw stuff at you. It's crazy. Sounds fun. <laughs> it sounds very fun, but that's where you learn uh, to get your act together. So I'm thinking about trying to hypnotize like the worst drunkards. And I think if I can do it there, I can do it anywhere. And especially on, you know, on a cruise in the Magic Castle. But this stuff is tough because really I'm trying to influence people. I'm trying to hypnotize, you know, a lot of people at the same time. Boy, you know, I, I, I just need a lot of practice for that. And, and I'm, 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 uh, <laughs> and I'm thinking about doing that tomorrow. So if you're in London anytime, uh, you're going to see me in some pub, you know, the more drunk people there are, the higher the chances that I'm going to be there. All right. Well, thank you. We'll be on the lookout for our London listeners there. But your day job is a professor for leadership and organizational behavior. Yeah, it's a bit different than that. Well, I love that combo. And you had Bob Sheldini endorse your book and it kind of reminded me of that. It's like, okay, a research professor who's also watching stuff unfold in, in the real world and immersing yourself in crazy situations. So what's your main area of focus research study as a professor? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned Gialdini. I'm a great, great fan of, of his work, uh, Influence, one of the best books I uh, I read. And, and, and he wrote a great blurb for my book. He actually said, we need this book. I was very proud of that. And, uh, you know, obviously applying uh, psychological techniques and applying, that's my main expertise. I'm, I'm looking at uh, techniques um, from science and I apply them to the real world. So I'm, I'm interested in theory, but also in the application. And and I think that that combination is very rare because you have scientists who are you know very much into their science and answering very small small questions and, and doing research and and uh, and so on. And then you have uh, you know salespeople or negotiators who don't care about science because they say ah you know it's all theory academics you know it's crap. I'm, I'm not interested in that. And you have very few who actually take the knowledge from academia from thousands of studies, you know, research and so on, and apply it to the real world. And that's what Gialdini did. And, you know, it's a great idol of mine. And that's what I'm doing. I'm looking at uh, science and applying it to practice. You know, So that is my, my, my day job. And it's, uh, of course, very different from the magic castle and performing hypnotism and all that. But in essence, it's the same. It's about how to influence and, um, and uh, read people. So, um, you know, it really goes hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Intriguing. And so now you've packaged some of this wisdom in your book, Convinced. What would you say is sort of like the main thesis or idea within it? Everything starts with the idea that actual and perceived competence almost have nothing to do with each other. Okay. Ooh, there's a thesis. Yeah. I mean, you know, lots of politicians or people say, I don't know, Jimmy Carter, U.S. president. Some people like him. Some say he didn't do anything. But as a matter of fact, do you really know what he did? Do you really know the decisions he made? No, probably not. You know, and yet you have a perception of his competence, of his expertise, how he was as a president. 
and uh, and the same is true with with every profession with with you know whether you're a lawyer or whether you're uh, in real estate or it, it doesn't matter what you sell insurances people say wow you know he's great she's fantastic she's the best I ever worked with or she's terrible and the question is if people don't know anything about your expertise how can they judge it well you know the truth of the matter is they can't and yet they do and so what I try to answer is uh, what do they base their judgments on and that's actually what I wrote my master thesis at Oxford on uh, many years ago uh, you know, looking at the, you know, things people look at when they judge other people. And I found some intriguing, really intriguing points. It's, it's, it's unbelievable what, what these judgments are based on. And this, of course, leads to the, uh, to, to the fact that you can influence the perception of yourself. You can look like the greatest, the best, the, you know, most fantastic expert in whatever field you want to, uh, you know, what you want to excel in or you want to look like you excel in uh, without actually being an expert. And that, that's quite amazing. You know, probably kind of sad to some people, but that's just the way it is. Actual and perceived competence almost, you know, there's no relation. Well, so that's wild in terms of no relation in terms of you looked at data points across the board and you just didn't find anything of a worthwhile correlation there, huh? Almost none. Wow. Uh, so it's very, very different points than actual competence that matter. Uh, one, one of the, you know, I'm sure you, that, you know, that would be the question you probably ask. Well, what is one of the points? I mean, it's obvious question. And one of the main points is confidence. Just like you saying it, like you know it, what you're talking about and you're certain of it. Exactly. Now, I mean, the point is this. I, I think I assume that in your in your job, you are pretty confident about certain things. And yet, probably, you know, you've heard, oh, under promise, over deliver. That makes a good impression. Or probably you heard, well, you know, let's not raise expectations. Let's be modest about it, humble about it. And truth of the matter is, it's very bad for your perceived competence because people trust people who display competence uh, through confidence, who display high levels of confidence. Let me just give you an example. If, you know, you see two people arguing about who won, I don't know, the 400 meter hurdle world championship in 1954. Now you have no idea. I have no idea. And let's say one of them puts uh, out a hundred dollar bill and bets on one of the candidates. So who would you trust, right? <laughs> the one who's so certain, because certainty, really, confidence, and and I, you know, I heard the sentence once: uh, showing certainty in the midst of uncertainty. That is one of the key tasks of a leader: um, the absorption of uncertainty. Somebody called it absorption of uncertainty, because especially when we trust in the competence of somebody, of an expert, we need somebody to take us take us by the hand and say, "Don't worry about it." I'll take care of it. Because that person then is, you know, if you do that, you're part of the solution, not part of the problem. Well, well, that's intriguing and appealing, but I guess it's worth digging into a little bit. Is that ethical? You know, is that a form of dishonesty or deception or, or lying for you to project confidence when you are actually pretty unsure if this thing is going to work out? First of all, I'm not telling you you should do that when you have no idea about what you're doing. But then you probably should change your job. All right, yeah. If you really don't know anything about the work you're doing, probably you should just work in a different field. I'm talking about the average, you know, everyday situations where people come to you with a task and usually you'll somehow you'll take care of it. Probably a little better, probably a little worse, but you can manage, right? That's the everyday uh, situation. Now, um, and is it ethical to be optimistic about it? 
well, let me ask you this. Is it ethical that people who are much worse than you, <laughs> that they get all the credit? Is it people that who are much worse than you and who just uh, show confidence and who can't do anything, that they get the promotions, that they get the clients? I doubt it. So basically, I'm giving you the tools to do PR on your behalf. So instead of having other people take all the credit, why not use the, the methods yourself? But basically, even in my book, I'm not telling you what to do. I'm just showing you what's possible and how the human brain works. And it's up to you to make the decision. I'm not telling anyone uh, what to do. I would never do that. Mm -hmm. Certainly. Well, I guess I'm thinking for those who want to be awesome at their job and to pick up mm -hmm. more opportunities and promotion and whatnot, this is something that's appealing, certainly, to be perceived as competent. That's great. Well, let me ask you, Pete. I mean, look, makeup, what's makeup all about? Well, you paint your face. Well, you don't look like that, but you still paint it. What about lipstick? Well, you know, you paint your lip. Well, you probably, you, you don't, but you know, a lot of people <laughs> paint their lips. Uh, why? So they look greater than they actually are. They wear high heels. Well, why? To look different and taller than they actually are. Guys that, you know, Pete, you probably comb your hair. Why? It doesn't actually look like that. So you kind of fake a hairstyle you don't actually have. You know, you shave. Why? Why do you remove your facial hair? That's all fake because actually you do have facial hair. So that's what we do all the time because we only have one life and we want to live the optimal life. What's wrong with that? There's nothing wrong. I hear you there. Yeah, so it's sort of like in the realm that you painted out there, it's kind of like, okay, someone requested that you do something and you are generally capable of pulling that off. But instead of saying something like, oh yeah, I should be able to handle this, you'd say something like, you got it, Jack. Exactly. Like, consider it done, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. And, you know, you can even point out the difficulties. You can say, wow, this is difficulty one, this is difficulty two, but you came to the right guy because I'm the one who take, takes care of it. And, you know, interestingly, uh, Donald Trump is a good example. I mean, if you like him or not, I don't even want to, you know, bash him or praise him, whatever. I'm, I'm sick of this. But <laughs> You're not even in the U.S. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What, you know, even in Germany, it's, it's unbelievable. Yeah. The exposure, uh, the, you know, it gets incredible. But anyway, what's really interesting was when, when I saw his campaign, uh, I thought, wow, I mean, he really used this technique. All he does basically is saying, I'll take care of it. I'm the best. I'm the greatest. No track record, no examples, nothing. And I thought, okay, probably he's, um, you know, this is he's just too much. It's just I'm not going to work. And I was amazed to see, well, you know, I was wrong. It did work without anything. And that was really the epitome of these, this technique, just giving people confidence without, you know, without anything, without any track record, nothing. So I thought that was really fascinating how far you can actually take this by really saying, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, don't worry, this actually works. Mm -hmm. And yet I don't suggest it. But what I'm suggesting is just changing your mindset and giving people a good feeling. Say, you know, you took the, you know, you came to the right person. Don't worry about it. I'll take care of it. And, and it cannot be overestimated how important that is to your client, to your superior, because everybody is scared. The moment they, they give you a task, they're scared that they make, they, that they made a mistake. And, you know, people remember, uh, you know, there's this famous quote, you know, people will forget what you said. They will forget what you did, but they will never forget how you made them feel. And that's right. That's true. And research su suggests even if you fail, even if you fail, and if you fail miserably, and if you had, you know, rose high expectations at first, you will still be perceived as more competent than if you had predicted the terrible result accurately. That's intriguing. Can you highlight a particular experiment or a bit of research that 
prove that out? Experiment by Schlenker and Leary, two American uh, psychologists who did that, that, you know, when people said, uh, I'm going to perform fantastic a certain task, and they did, you know, they just performed miserably. And yet they were per perceived as being twice as competent as those who would have predicted the terrible result accurately. So after the results came in, the observers saw what happened. The result. And that's, you uh, know, that's one of the main experiments I'm wild. describing in my, in my book. Uh, in, the, in the second chapter, it's all about that experiment. I'm curious, what was the promise and what was the result? Because that's just so intriguing. And how do they people justify it? Let's go for it. They didn't. It was, you know, really, really simple. There was one group, they had to perform a task. The other ones just had to judge uh, the, their, their, their expertise in that task. It were random tasks that were allocated. And, uh, you know, the one group predicted their outcome. And uh, then they performed the task. So the result was apparent. So, you know, you could see how they performed very clearly. Mm -hmm. And yet it turned out that their prediction uh, really influenced the, uh, uh, the um, uh, assessment uh, greatly of how they, how competent they were perceived. Well, that's fascinating. And that I thought was really amazing because the result was, was there. Uh, everybody saw the result. And uh, it was very clear that if, if they said, you know, I'm going to perform fantastic, great, they were perceived as being much more competent they, if they under-promised and over-delivered, much more competent. And even if, that to me was the most interesting part, even if they failed, even if they totally failed, uh, they, if they were optimistic, they were per, uh, perceived as being much more competent. And by the way, you're even perceived as being more likable because people say, is that ethical to be so confident? Well, let me ask you this. Is it ethical to be modest when, you're, when you should be doing your job? Let's say you're a surgeon. You, you know, I broke my leg. You come to my bed and say, you know what? I'm not a very good surgeon. I'm sorry. You know, I, I went to university, but I wasn't the best. You know, I kind of had to do it. My parents wanted me to study medicine. <laughs> do I think, wow, you know, what a nice, humble guy. No, I get the hell out of there and I <laughs> never come back, right? That's, that's not nice. Why are people humble? Why are people modest? Because they fear that they're going to fail. And that's just one way to say, uh, well, yeah, I told you I couldn't do it. Is that good ethically? Is that good to be modest when it's about, you know, about a job you should be able to perform? I doubt it. I don't think so. You're raising so many fascinating questions there. And I guess in a way, it's also like if you kind of commit to a result that is kind of beyond you and a stretch of you, well, often you rise to the occasion anyway. So yeah. over the long term, you're developing actual competence because you've continued to put yourself into stretch positions and you had no choice but to deliver because you don't want to look like a fool. No, absolutely. And that's, you know, the Bannister effect. You know, Roger Bannister ran the one mile in under four minutes in 1954 here at Oxford. Uh, he was an Oxford student and then became an Oxford professor. He just passed away a few years ago. And Roger Bannister, what was interesting is he was the first human being in recorded history to run the mile in under one minute. And, you know, people thought before they thought it's impossible. It's physically impossible. But what was really interesting was that a few weeks after he achieved that, somebody else ran the one mile in, in under one, uh, four minutes as well, so I think in Finland or somewhere. And then somebody did in the UK a few weeks after that. And it's known as the banister effect now that if you raise expectations, you perform better. If you raise your goal, you will actually perform better. Mm -hmm. So once the goal was raised to below four minutes, people perform better. And that's really interesting. It's very interesting for negotiations called, you know, anchoring effects. 
And it's very interesting for yourself. If you have very high goals, if you're very confident, you will actually perform better. Uh, also known as a self-fulfilling prophecy. Mm-hmm. Back to that experiment with the assessors who saw the poor results from the confident people. I wonder kind of what rationalization is going on in their head in terms of they think, you know what, he must have had an off day, you know, she must have been tired or stressed or this probably isn't representative. Everyone gets unlucky sometimes. Yeah, no, it's exactly right that people, when they were very optimistic and failed, it was attributed to external factors and not to internal factors. Exactly what you said. Boy, I'm going to be chewing on this for years to come, I think. Thank you. I I did. I was thinking about this for years. (laughs) I mean, I was depressed at first. I thought the world was so unfair. You know, everyone is stupid. I came along a quote from JFK, presumably said, it's not confirmed, but presumably said the world is unfair, but not necessarily to your disadvantage. (laughs) And that opened my eyes. I thought, you know what? Why do I always complain about the world being so unfair? Why don't I just take advantage of it? That is a good turn of a phrase. It's kind of evil. I have to. Right. Well, but it's true. It's like, I've had lucky breaks. I've had unlucky breaks. And um, yeah, I mean, if you found 10 bucks on the street, are you going to say, oh, the world is unfair? No, you're going to take it. Be, you know, you're happy and you just walk away. Right. Even though it is unfair. So we tend to forget that, you know, sometimes we actually benefit from things being unfair. Uh-huh. Well, so let's talk about it. Let's say. All right. So one thing is when you accept an assignment, you accept it with gusto, with confidence. You say you've come to the right person, bring it on, consider it done. I got this. I'm going to crush it, et cetera. So what are some of the other practices associated with radiating competence or kind of some of the top do's and don'ts when it comes to making that happen? Well, I mean, there are you know, so, so many points. I have eight keys in my book. Let me think, which one should I give you that really, oh yeah, one one is really interesting, the Dr. Fox experiment. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of it. I thought also it was an interesting experiment that the researchers took an actor and um, brought him to a convention. It was like, I don't know, about education, uh, whatever. So the actor gave a speech on a you know very specific topic. Now the speech was nonsense, total nonsense. It didn't have any content really, but it sounded pretty good. Now, uh, you, you could think that, you know, wow, experts would, would find out because they're experts. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly, when the actor who didn't know anything about the topic, uh, when he gave the speech and he did it in a very enthusiastic way, so he was pacing the floor and he, he seemed to really care about the subject, really love the subject, he got extremely high marks on his presentation. And I thought that was really interesting, especially compared to the control group where the guy, the the same actor, gave the same presentation just to a different group, also of experts, but he barely moved. He was just standing there still. Now, only this made all the difference. So if you talk about your topic in a very enthusiastic way and people say, wow, he or she loves the topic, you will be rated so much higher than if you just stand there and talk. Even if you say, you know, I just came from, from an Oxford debate at the Oxford Union, the debating club here. And the last speaker, nobody really knew what she was saying because she was saying in such a boring way. She just read it out um, that, you know, you just couldn't follow. There was one Dutch guy who was just pacing the floor. And even though he was saying he was repeating his same point over and over, he kind of got us because, you know, I caught myself thinking, wow. This guy really cares about what he's saying. This guy must really know what he's talking about. 
So it's it's this enthusiasm. So nonverbal communication, pacing the floor, looking people in the eye and being really, really uh, eager about getting your point across. This makes such a difference. So again, just remember, confidence in whatever your task is and enthusiasm. So if you show these two things, you know, this is already a great, great way to show your confidence. That's excellent. And so when it comes to enthusiasm, I have a picture of what that means in terms of your voice. It shows emotion on different things like this is very sad or very exciting or very enraging. You have some variety in the voice. And I think there's some swiftness to the words at times that you're speaking a little bit faster because you're into it. Oh, faster also is very good, by the way. Yeah. Speaking faster, you're being perceived as being more intelligent. People who speak faster are being perceived as more intelligent because people think, ah, if he speaks fast, he must think fast too. Thinking fast, intelligence is linked to competence. So speaking fast is always a good idea. Mm-hmm. Oh, all right, cool. Well, are there any other kind of subcomponents or individual pieces that get picked up on when someone says, whoa, that guy's into it? Yeah. Also, another interesting point is uh, eye contact. Now, we think eye contact is really important. Well, it is, but not in the way you would think. So, for instance, if you if you uh, give a speech, if you give a presentation, if you're in a meeting, it's actually good. When you talk, you should hold eye contact with the people you're talking to. Very important. Don't forget that. But if people talk to you, you should not hold eye contact. It's actually beneficial for you to look away. Now, you have to be careful not to be rude, of course. But it's interesting, and you know why? It's a question of status, because who looks at who? Well, usually it's the servant looking at the master, taking orders. So by looking people in the eye when they're talking to you, unconsciously you show them that you're of low status, and that's bad for your perceived competence. So if somebody's talking to you, look away. Again, you have to be very careful not to be rude, because obviously that's very negative. But there's no problem in, you know, looking right and left, kind of pondering about what he or she is saying, but you do not have to hold eye contact. So it's really interesting that for your perceived competence, it's better to look away when they're talking to you. Mm-hmm. Who would have thought, right? Yeah. Because some things are in common sense and others are quite just the opposite. Well, so let's talk a little bit about managing expectations optimally. We talked about it's best to commit and say yes with gusto. Do you have any other pro tips for how you do that wisely? Yeah. And, and, you know, by the way, the whole book is just filled with, with this stuff that I found. And, you know, sometimes I was really surprised. It's like in a kind of system. It's in eight chapters now. And some of the things are really surprising. Now, about expectations, what's also very important um, when you raise expectations, when you show confidence, one thing you have to keep in mind, and that's whether you want to sell something, whether it's yourself, your competence, your services, or a product, it doesn't matter. One thing you have to know, is that people don't choose what they like best. People choose what they fear least. Hmm. We have a loss aversion. It's one of the main motivations of human behavior that we go away from risk, obviously. I mean, there are good reasons for that, you know. Um, And so you have to know every time you sit down with a client, you sit down uh, with your employer, you sit down with your superior, with your colleague, you have to remember that the main thing is you have to take away their fear. So don't try to be a good choice. Don't try to be the best. Just think about everything that makes you a bad choice and eliminate that. Mm-hmm. Give you an example. You know, when I applied here at Oxford as a student many years ago, um, you know, I was a philosopher. I, you know, I just studied philosophy and psychology. I had nothing to do with business. And yet I applied to the business school. So I thought, I don't look like a business guy. 
So what did I do? Well, I dressed up like a business guy. I bought some uh, pinstripe uh, pants and I went to the interview like that. And, you know, I remember my professor, first thing she said was, wow, you know, I thought there's going to be an, uh, some philosopher now, but I think you'd fit right in. So, you know, it's as simple as that sometimes. That's cool. It's just you have to remember, you know, just think about why, what could it be? Why would they uh, say no to you? What, what speaks against you? And, you know, that's exactly what you face. Mm-hmm. Can you give us some more examples of how you would take away fears? I guess I'm wondering about if I'm influencing someone to support my proposal or initiative yeah. or plan of action. What are some key ways I might take away their risk and fear? Well, the very first thing is that you find out what their fear is and you basically ask them. I mean, if you think of most salespeople, most sales situations, people don't ask you. They just talk. They just come with their pitch, no matter what you say. And obviously, you know, that's one of the worst things that can happen. Uh, you know, people just talking to you, blah, 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 without you talking uh, and, and telling you what you want. Uh, so the very, the very first thing you have to do is you have to find out what their fear is. And once you know what their fear is, what they're scared of, you can tackle it. Usually, it's, you know, it's quite easy. For, for instance, uh, I want a haircut, you know, because I travel a lot for my job. Uh, you know, I, I give negotiation trainings here and there, and sometimes I'm stuck uh, in some, you know, rural area for a week, and I need a haircut. So I go to the hairdresser, and I'm scared because I don't know how he or she is. Well, of course, I can look on, you know, Google how many stars, but, you know, they can be fake, they can be bought, whatever. So, you know, I'm longing to this day, I'm longing for a hairdresser who comes out of his store and says, don't be afraid. Don't worry about it. You know, I know you're scared. You've never been here. But, you know, sit down, relax. I'm really good at what I do. Now, this sounds very simple. But when when has this ever happened to you? That somebody takes you by your hand and says, just don't worry. You know, I'm very, very good at what I do. Because we tend to believe what other people tell us. If somebody tells you, you know what, I'm really good at what I do. We tend to believe them. And interestingly, also, we tend to confirm our beliefs. So everything he or she does afterwards, we see as a confirmation of his or her quality. Hmm. Many years ago, I bought shoe, you know, British shoe, shoemaker, and I asked him, well, why should I buy the shoes? The customers ask stupid questions because they want you to take away their fear. And the guy said, because they're the best shoes in the world. And I laughed, I chuckled, and yet I bought them. And, well, I was back a few weeks later because the heel fell off again <laughs> after six weeks. But I, I wasn't upset. I felt bad that I ruined his masterpiece. <laughs> and to this day, I still have these shoes. And I, you know, I'm sure they're not the best shoes in the world. And yet I cannot throw them away after 15 years because I still think, well, they must be very, very special. So the guy, you know, he did nothing but just say, don't worry about it. You know, these are the best in the world. And if you buy them, you know, they're just the best. Uh-huh. It was unbelievable. It was outrageous, actually. And yet it worked. So by saying, hey, don't worry about it. Sit down, have a tea. I'll take care of it. It's not an easy situation. It will take some time. You have to say that because if you don't say that, they'll just give you more and more work. Say, it's, it's, diff- it's difficult because of this, this, and this. But if anyone can do it, it's me. You came to the right place. Sit down, relax. Have a cookie. I'll take care of it. Okay. Thank you. Now, you also lay out a few particular approaches to elevate our status through praise and peacemaking. What's the story behind these? 
status is one of the eight points. Um, interestingly, that you know uh, you raise your level of competence, uh, your perceived competence, by raising your level of status. If your status is perceived as higher, I mean, give you a simple example. If your family doctor talks about some political questions about Congress, chances are you will take him or her seriously. Why? I mean, he's a doctor. He doesn't know anything about politics, no more than, than me or you. But he's a doctor. He has a high status. And because of this, you tend to uh, put more uh, weight in, in, in whatever he or she says, and that is called status generalization. So if somebody has a high or a low status, everything he or she does will be linked to this status. So there are ways to have higher status. And it's not just wearing a Rolex or, or you know, wearing like a nice brands or all that. No, there's some subtle ways to um, elevate your status. And one is the one you just mentioned is by being a peacemaker. It's usually it's a, a royal uh, regal task uh, to get people, you know, at a meeting. People are fighting and you are the one who makes peace. Well, you, at your office, you have two people quarreling for a while. Well, you should be the one who says, you know, set up a date and say, come on, let's talk about it. You will be remembered as the one who made, who brought peace to it. And that is a royal, a royal uh, task, a royal thing to have done. And they w this will elevate your status tremendously. Interesting. Okay. And so you can make peace either by formally establishing, hey, let's set a time. Or maybe you can even just sort of chime in and say, hey, let's make sure that we're respecting all viewpoints, <laughs> you know, or something, I don't know, uh, you know, along those lines. So, okay, cool. What, what are some of the other approaches to elevating status? Well, very interesting because, um, you know, people came to me and said, well, what about Mark Zuckerberg? Or some people just wear sneakers and they come to all these great conventions. Steve Jobs. Steve, yeah. Anyway, so these two uh, are very famous for, you know, you know, taking the stage with a turtleneck, sneakers, a t-shirt, whatever. So how is that possible? Well, the, the answer is very, it's very interesting that there is something called nonconformity. So uh, if you do not conform, um, ob obviously do not conform. Everyone is wearing a tie, uh, but you're wearing a t-shirt. So what the hell is going on here? Well, this can actually increase your status. Uh, even Hitler knew that, by the way, interestingly, because he always wore a, a very plain uniform of the lowest rank. And he had other people surround him with the biggest uniform, with thousands of medals, whatever, you know, Goering with crazy medals. And he, he, and he wrote it that, that in, in, uh, in one of his texts, he said, well, I, this makes me look like a saint because, you know, I'm the one on the stage. And even though everybody presumably is of a higher status, I must be almost holy to be on that stage. So that is an interesting thought that, you know, I'm not saying that, you know, Mark Zuckerberg and Steve Jobs read Hitler to, to be like that, but basically it's the same idea of nonconformity. It's the idea that um, if you do not conform, um, uh, you are actually, your status will increase, but this only works when you already have a pretty high position, yeah. when you already have, when you already are respected, when you're an intern and do that, it's just ridiculous. It'll just boot you out of that place. Mm -hmm. But if you're the CEO of Apple and you do that, people will go, wow, you know, amazing. So, you know, this nonconformity thing only works when you really have a certain status within your company, within your organization. And then this can really work wonders. That's cool. But just remember, it only works when you have a real high status. Okay. Now, you've also got some perspective on how you can boost your overall likability and attractiveness. How is that done? Yeah. Now, competence is a very particular trait. So you don't have to be likable in order to be perceived as competent. And yet, 
being liked makes it easier because of a halo effect. So if people like you, chances are you will be perceived as more competent. Um, and also if you're more attractive, and that, that to me, again, was shocking how important attractiveness is in overall, you know, in our day-to-day interactions. Incredibly important. <laughs> like really surprisingly important, even in, in friendships of uh, same-sex, heterosexual friends. Children play more with other children who are attractive. Parents love their children more if they're more attractive. Shocking result, really. It was incredible. And the thing is that if you're perceived as being more attractive, that um, you will be perceived as more competent. And there are just some ways to look more attractive. Do tell, do tell. Do I have to get plastic surgery, Jack? What, what has to happen? Yeah, it's interesting that even I talked to, uh, you know, cosmetic surgeons, they didn't know about the, this research. Unbelievable. Like, this is your value proposition, guy. <laughs> you know, I, yeah, I wish I could tell you it's all in the book, you know, I, I forgot. I'll give you one, you know, i just tell you two things because, you know, some people say, well, you know, I'm attractive, I'm not attractive, what can I change? Well, funny thing is, there are many things you can change quite easily. And also there are many things you don't have to change because they don't matter. Like the nose has almost no significance for attractive. No kid. Yeah. Unless it's like tremendously big or, or tremendously ugly or whatever, you know, whatever. Uh, tremendously beautiful doesn't even help because it's always more difficult, you know, to stand out as particularly beautiful is very difficult for a nose. To stand out as particularly ugly much easier. Okay. It's kind of unfair again, but you know, that's the way we perceive things. That's, that's how, you know, how we act. Now, interestingly though, um, a, tan, a tan, for instance, is one of the most important factors. Just a tan and, uh, and a pure clean skin. And I think, you know, probably not, not very easy, but I think it's quite easy. You don't need any surgery. You need nothing almost. Uh, eyelashes, dark eyelashes, one of the things that makes such a tremendous difference. Um, and also, you know, for some, well, you know, there, there, there are just some points um, that one researcher found, uh, he, he looked at all the points that come to, you know, that lead to attractiveness. And this is unpublished research. And it's, it's a researcher in Germany who spent years doing nothing but this, and he never published it. I don't know why. I mean, I talked to him. I said, come on, this is unbelievable. This revolution. He said, well, I don't know. I just like the research. Well, um, and I, you know, I, I give you all the points on, you know, what really makes people attractive because why? Because I think, first of all, I think it's tremendously interesting. We spend billions every year to look more attractive and most of it is wasted on stuff that doesn't really matter. I would think about the teeth, you know, if they're white and yeah, straight also. would be a asset. Yeah, that's also a good example. I mean, if teeth are white, you won't say, wow, his teeth are so white. But if they're yellow, you will say, well, it's disgusting. It's not very symmetrical. So bad things stand out in a much stronger uh, way than good things. Well, and how about clothing? Clothing is all about status. So, you know, when, when somebody said you, you shouldn't dress for the job you have, you should dress for the job you want to have. But here again, you should keep in mind that a tie and a jacket isn't always the, you know, the right choice. If you work in a startup or something, but there's, there are also status symbols. You just have to know what they are. So, you know, they probably stand in line for some Nike sneakers for, for a day or something. But they're all, anywhere you go, they're status symbols, but they differ. They don't have to be Ferragamo ties. They're just sneakers or whatever. But, uh, you know, that's, if you ask me about clothing, that's the most important thing about clothing. Is that it is conveying status to the appropriate audience? Yep, that's right. That's right. I was thinking about the fit being pretty important in terms of you could have a t-shirt 
that is kind of sloppy and too big or too small or a t-shirt that's just, you know, hugging you just right. It's just like, well, that's an attractive person because, you know, maybe you could see my broad shoulders or whatever perfectly. But that again would be part of status, you know, that, that clothes are actually, you know, made to measure uh, or bespoke um, or at least fit. You know, if you see somebody with an XL t-shirt uh, and, and, you know, he's obviously thin, it just looks stupid. But these are details, uh, you know, I, I didn't really go into. It's more like all the research that tells you, ah, okay, so, you know, these are interesting points, non-conformity. Uh, okay, you know, smiling, for instance, how important is smiling? That's, you know, the chapter about nonverbal communication. And you, you find interesting things about smiling. Well, smiling isn't always good. There are some times when you shouldn't smile at all because smiling actually hurts your perceived competence. You look like a dork when you smile. When should I not smile? <laughs> Well, uh, you, you just shouldn't smile when there's no reason to smile. If you just smile all the time, you, you look stupid and people do that and, and they think it's polite or nice or, or you know, you know, there's so many, uh, you know, quotes on, on, on uh, mugs uh, about smiling. But, well, for your perceived competence, they don't necessarily help. If you go to a lawyer and you have a real serious subject because your child's in jail and he keeps smiling. And you think, what the hell, why is he smiling? <laughs> so, you know, there's some misconceptions and, uh, you know, you should just smile when, when something is funny or when you, you know, say hi, or, but, but, but uh, actually can be bad for your perceived competence. Why? Because again, your status will look low because who smiles all the time? Well, it's salesman or it's, uh, uh, yeah, well, somebody wants something from you, right? I got understood. So I suppose you could smile when you're greeting someone because, you know, that's sort of normal. Uh, it's like, oh, hey, they're kind of happy to see me. But if you're keeping the smiling going in, in the midst of, you know, boring topic, it's sort of like, what is up with this person? Exactly. Also, even when you when you greet, it's not necessary. And when it's about a real important topic and, you know, somebody greets you with a firm handshake without actually smiling, you think, wow, okay, he or she is really into the topic now. Let's cut to the chase. So even then, it, it could be beneficial. Uh, not to smile. So, you know, the, the smile fetish, that's just something you, you know, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't do. Okay. Well, this has been so fascinating. So now tell me, Jack, anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things? I already mentioned too much. You should buy the book. Okay. No, give everything away. Come on. You know, don't ask me any more questions because I've, there's nothing. <laughs> well, there's, yeah, there's some stuff left. Yeah, I gave away a lot. Damn. Cool, How yeah. That me, Pete? How do you do that? Oh, shucks. <laughs> well, so this is not book specific, so maybe the pressure's off a little bit. Can you share with us a favorite quote, something you find inspiring? Oh, you know, I read so much, and that's one of the things I do all the time. I, I just love reading and uh, love new input, and I'm always fascinated by new ideas. And I think just being open, having an open mind and always learning, I think that for me is the best. So it's not just one thing or one book, because every week, I'm, I'm reading a different book on a different topic. And, uh, and you know, right now I'm uh, reading The Bitter Angels of Our Nature about how the world evolves in a positive way. I think that's really fascinating. It's a great, great book. It's very long, uh, but, it, but it's really fascinating. And how about a favorite habit? Something that helps you be awesome at your job. A favorite habit is uh, I try to touch or look at things only once. And that's it. I just try to look at the one thing once, decide and just get rid of it. Look at an email once, not save it or something. Just do it quickly. Uh, because, you know, I, I just found that if I keep stuff on my desk, it just keeps piling up, you know. I, but I just have to allocate certain time slots for things. But then I just do, look at it once and I just do it. And, you know, my one of my favorite quotes is, it's better to do it 
well now than perfect tomorrow or the day after tomorrow or never, you know? And that's one of my favorite uh, quotes, or I don't know, you know, it's a quote, but it's an idea to rather get stuff done now than to have do it better in, in a week or, or never. Uh-huh. Okay, cool. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them? Uh, I point to my website, jacknasher.com. It's packed with great stuff. Okay. Did you have a final challenge or a call to action for folks seeking to be awesome at their jobs? No, I think, uh, and you know, and that was one of the points of my book is that, you know, we, you know, you spend so much time being good at your job. You spend so much time, you know, going to college, executive education, reading books, but you don't spend any time thinking about how you should sell your capabilities, how you should sell your competencies. And that's what this is about. You know, I'm not telling you to fake uh, anything. I'm just showing you how to display whatever it is, you know, whatever it is you can do and to really excel in your job by displaying um, whatever competence you have. And I think, you know, you should take some time off. And even if it's only by reading one book, and, you know, I'm not saying which book, but I'm just suggesting one book, I think it's well worth your time. Because it's just not enough to be good. You have to show that, you know, that you are. Awesome. Well, Jack, this has been a real treat. Thanks so much for taking the time. I wish you tons of luck with your book, Convinced, and all your adventures. Well, thank you very much for your interest in my book. Thanks a lot for these great questions. I enjoyed it very much. I'm just so fascinated by the research Jack has associated with if you project confidence, even if your results aren't the best, you do better off than had you not projected that confidence. And I just went back and forth like, oh, is that dishonest? Is that unethical? Is that a form of lying to convey certainty confidence when I don't actually have that certainty confidence? And I love the tactics he suggested in terms of highlighting, hey, this will be difficult for these key reasons, but you've come to the right place. I think it's well worth it if you're thinking, I don't know, that doesn't feel like me, that doesn't sound natural, to think through, well, what would sound like you? What is the confident, I got this style response? Probably not saying I got this. I know people like my mom hate that phrase (laughs) with a passion. But what is that equivalent phrase that shows you've got a whole lot of confidence, you're ready to take it on? And so maybe it's consider it done. Or maybe it's even just clarifying exactly the output you're going to give them or highlighting some of the historicals in terms of, you know what, uh, Joe over at marketing asked me for that a couple months ago. And so I gave him a rundown spreadsheet, which included A, B, C, D, E, you know, sorted by this and subtotals with that and so forth. And then they might say, yes, perfect. That's exactly what I'm looking for. And that conveys sort of the same sort of a thing. It's like, okay, you are on top of this completely and you are conveying that confidence. So think through what is the combination of words that conveys the confidence and seems good, honest, true, right, and just, and natural for you to express and lean on it. You know, make that a natural part of your repertoire verbally. So that'd be my recommendation. I've been doing a bit of that myself and digging it. I hope you do too. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are on over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep370. If you haven't already, I hope you push subscribe. If you do, you'll hear for our next guest. It is Don Yeager, and he has a amazing set of insights associated with what makes greatness happen in individuals and teams. He's drawing from his experience as a well-renowned, esteemed writer for Sports Illustrator, interacting with all kinds of athletic greats, but he's also studied the greats in business and teams, and he's packaging those lessons for us. Until next time, peace. Thanks for joining us for today's episode. To get the most out of this conversation, visit awesomeatyourjob.com to find today's show notes, transcript, and infographic summary cheat sheet. For more entertaining professional skill sharpening, be sure to subscribe to catch the next episode of How to Be Awesome at Your Job. 